This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash friendlyatheistpodcast to support the show. We'll be back next week with a regular episode with Jessica, but this week I had the opportunity to do an interview. Dr. Susanna Krivulskaya is an assistant professor of history at California State University, San Marcos, where she teaches courses in United States history. Her first book, Disgraced, How Sex Scandal Transformed American Protestantism, will be published in early 2024 by Oxford University Press. We spoke about the Falwells, the Bakers, the Haggards, why the wives of these types of pastors often stand by their scandal-plagued pastor husbands, and what these scandals reveal about evangelical Christianity. Susanna, thanks so much for joining me. So, of all the areas of religion to focus on, why the fascination with preachers' wives? <laughs> it's nice to be here, Hammond. Um, well, it goes back kind of a long time. I was in college when the Ted Haggard scandal broke. And for those who are not familiar, 2006, this big deal evangelical leader gets caught or gets revealed to have also visited a male sex worker for multiple years from whom he occasionally purchased crystal meth. So that seemed like an interesting entry point as I myself was sort of navigating my own theological commitments, my sexuality. And so really since then, I've been chasing the study of American religion and what it means for the history of sexuality as well. You were you were already interested in theology at the time, and just so I can give you my perspective on what was going on at that time, my foray into the world of atheism is that I was visiting a bunch of churches at the time and writing about my experiences. I visited Ted Haggard's church a oh, wow. few months before that scandal broke, and I later got a chance to interview the sex worker in question. But I guess the to go back to that story, I mean, what I remember about that story is this is the height of hypocrisy for this even he wasn't just an evangelical leader. He was like a political force at the time. But what was fascinating with that story is that his wife stayed by his side the entire time. So what's going on there? Because it's not just hypothetically that this guy is gay or that he's doing something unethical with the drugs and the person he was meeting. What was it about that story with regarding his wife that was so fascinating for you? Right. So she stands by his side, as so many wives do, of both religious and non-religious figures when the scandal first breaks. And I think back in 2006 and seven, they go into counseling for a while. He emerges hilariously declaring himself to be completely heterosexual after the first round of counseling. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're hoping for a quick comeback because we have this longer history of disgraced ministers very quickly recovering and coming back to their posts. Um, and I talk about that longer history in my book. Uh, but for Gail, you know, it's really interesting. I actually have a lot of compassion for both of them, even though there's now new allegations of all kinds of stuff against poor Ted. Um, but, you know, she does in her book, she talks about, she, she kind of couches it all in the language of Christian forgiveness, right? Her responsibility is fundamentally to be faithful to God and her family. 
She decides to stay even after she learns of other sexual encounters that had had with men. Um, and they really, they also take this kind of Christian counseling approach to his sexuality. Um, and they recognize his desires, but also ultimately value or attempt to portray to value his commitment to his marriage. And so he'll make arguments about like, well, just because, you know, you have attraction to somebody else, if you're in a relationship, it doesn't mean that you get to go out and explore that attraction, which actually makes sense, ex except you're also promoting, you know, policies and, and religious uh, commitments that actively harm people who don't share your religious commitments. So I know it's hard to put yourself in their shoes, but do you think I'm not specifically asking about Gail, uh, Ted Haggard's wife, but for some of these stories where you see the pastor have this fall from grace and the wife stays by his side, how much of that do you think from your research is genuine commitment to the idea of forgiveness? And how much is this is my platform, too? I don't want to give that up. I mean, it's not just limited to pastors here, but plenty of people might say, yeah, my marriage is rocky, but I'm going to stay in it because the whatever the fame I have, the platform I have is in direct connection to being married to this person. And so, you know what? I'll deal with it privately, but publicly I will put on this face. Like, did you ever get the feeling that some of these people might be genuine, but some of them were sticking to it just because uh, it was better for their uh, public lives, I for their pocketbooks? <laughs> right. And I'm thinking here, I think the Tammy Faye Baker example is useful here. So she stands by Jim for a while. She then divorces Jim when he goes to prison. But throughout, she is testifying in both of her autobiographies. She's testifying to his straightness in this way that seems <laughs> uh, deeply strange, especially post-divorce. But she'll talk about how gentle of a lover he was, how attracted she felt he was to her, um, that the rumors of his bisexuality were never true because she really knew this man. And I don't know if some of this is just shame, you know, despite her eventually becoming a sort of queer icon herself, we can talk about the kind of baggage of a conservative religious upbringing, <laughs> right, with regard to sexuality. So there's that. There is the kind at the time when the scandal first broke, obviously wanting to save their empire, of which she was a huge part. Uh, but what's curious to me with, with her, though, is that later recollection and still time and again testifying to his straightness, which is just fascinating. Even as he in she prison didn't have talking to, to do that, she did it right, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And he in prison is exploring his queerness too with a therapist, right? He, he, there's a passage in his book, which again is one of those things that he publishes to return to ministry. Um, he talks about a session with a therapist in which he frankly asked the therapist, Do you think I'm gay? And the therapist allegedly affirms his straightness and says something like, nobody could love women as much as you do and be gay. <laughs> and so they kind of wash their hands of the whole affair and stop exploring. But anyway, so Tammy Faye, I think, is, a, a, is kind of an odd but interesting example. I think for many other women, it's true, right? They're used to this life. And honestly... I don't know how many of them are having sex with their husbands at this point anyway, <laughs> right? So, and again, I have no way of knowing this. Do you think that, I, and yeah, you don't know this, obviously, but like, 
do you think the shame of being the divorced pastor's wife is more of an incentive for them to stay in what appears from the outside to be some of these broken marriages? Like, if they were not pastors, if they were not famous, it would be really easy for someone like me from the outside to be like, just split up. It's not working for you. But because of the position they're in within the evangelical world, uh, they're pressured to stay in it no matter what. I think so. I also think about their kids. So the Haggards have one kid with special needs. And I, mean, I think that that's just hard for any family. So again, I, I have a lot of compassion for them. The The Baker's kids were sort of troubled too for a time. The The son got into drugs and alcohol. Now himself is a progressive preacher, right? So some of it is just that, you know, a very actually human desire to keep the family together. But I do think you're right in that at this point, they've been in this life for so long that it's really hard to actually imagine a different life. And so staying might seem easier. How much compassion should I feel for someone like Ted Haggard's wife, for someone like Becky Falwell? Um, because they, I mean, Becky Falwell has her own issues that has been reported on, but like, Last weekend, I had my in-laws over, and we needed to make dinner in a crunch. Instead of ordering out, we did something even easier thanks to ButcherBox. We were able to grab just what we needed and exactly how much we needed from the freezer. After that, everything else was a breeze. You, too, can skip the grocery store knowing you have the food you trust and the food you chose in your freezer. I know that might sound strange coming from me since I'm vegetarian, but they have a high-quality veggie burger that I absolutely love. They have options for pescatarians, too. And if you eat everything, that's also okay. The food from ButcherBox is high-quality, grass-fed, and free-range. Have peace of mind knowing there are no antibiotics or added hormones. Sign up at ButcherBox.com friendly and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com friendly and use code FRIENDLY to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In some of these cases where the pastor does something uh, immoral, and the wife is left kind of to stay by her man or leave or something like that. Part of me feels bad for them. Part of me feels like the guy did this. You shouldn't be you, you shouldn't be held responsible for it. But also you're the one that's being trashed along the same lines. But also I find it really hard to feel bad for them because, like you said, uh, the stuff they were promoting as pastors, as pastors' wives mm -hmm. is so harmful I'm wondering if that changed for you at all while you're researching any of this. Uh, you mentioned like Tammy Faye Baker is strangely like a queer icon, but like, should she be? We know what she was preaching about <laughs> beforehand, but I, but that goes for a lot of these wives too. I know what Ted Haggard was preaching. I don't feel that bad for Gail because of what he was doing, even if she wasn't the one in the pulpit. Yeah, I think actually both those examples though, those women are aware of this legacy and how the scandal gets spun in the press with regard to sort of 
how are you going to actively harm queer people and then go and be caught up in in uh, these sex scandals? So, you know, Tammy, in Tammy's defense, she did some pioneering interviews with HIV positive folks, for example, hang out with drag queens. Uh, and her and Jim's programming was mostly about making money and not talking too much about sin, right? <laughs> so, right. Even though they obviously supported a system that promoted this kind of rise of evangelical political engagement. Uh, Ted Haggard, too, in retrospect, there's a great documentary by uh, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra Pelosi, on HBO about him. Um, and, and they will both claim, you know, we were actually never actively anti-gay, even though we know that they supported <laughs> anti-gay or constitutional amendments that would make marriage between a man and a woman, all of that. Um, yeah. Becky... <laughs> Becky Falwell is a fascinating character because she she's sort of the culprit, right? In in their case, she yeah, she's, she's the one the one sleeping around, but yeah. with permission, with permission, and apparently enthusiastic um, voyeurism from a corner of the room. Yeah. So, well, and also there were uh, reports in terms of Becky Falwell that she uh, seduced might be putting it too kindly. Uh, one of her son's friends. So it's not all like, again, part of me says, I don't care about your public life. I don't care about your sex life. It's none of my business what you do, as long as it's all consensual. But in their world, it's not okay. And again, how much compassion should anyone have for someone like her? Because again, it's very much a it's okay for me to do it. It's not okay for any of you to do it. If any students at Liberty University did what mm -hmm. Jerry or Becky Falwell did, they would have been expelled. Right, right. And I think, you know, they're the products of their own misguided theologies. And the thing that is so fascinating and depressing in this longer history um, that I study is that very rarely do these incidents cause people to rethink their dogmas, right? Mm -hmm. the, the honest way of grappling with this would be to say, okay, human sexuality is more complex than how the Christian right has portrayed it. Let's rethink some of our values. Right? Perhaps marriage doesn't have to be closed. I mean, I'm being radical, right? But instead, no, right. they doubled theory, down. They could, they could rethink some yes. of these very strict guidelines. Right, right. But what they do is just pretend that what they've done is actually evidence of their correct faith, that the <laughs> sin itself is evidence of our own, you know, human fallen nature. And therefore, I was tempted they were by right. sin, the devil yeah. got me, and now I'm making, I'm even stronger to resist in the <laughs> exactly, future. Exactly, exactly. So, but also, you know, as a former evangelical myself who was dealing with issues of theology and sexuality in college as that Haggard scandal was breaking, I understand the, the kind of impossible situation. And on that level, I can have compassion for them because as I was realizing I wasn't as straight as my evangelical friends told me I was supposed to be. I was also still trying to remain in the faith. And it was a hard struggle. Eventually, I left because that seemed the most consistent moral choice. But I can recognize that it's not an easy one also. Can you, if you don't mind me asking, can you talk about that a little bit? Because, yeah, you grew up as an evangelical. And if I have this right, you were training to be a missionary. And that's the time when you were struggling with 
your doubts and leaving all that. What was that trigger that made you think, I don't think I'm in the right place here? Yeah, so I actually, I converted. So I grew up in Minsk, Belarus, which is a nominally um, orthodox uh, cultural religious environment. I met some missionaries from the U.S. when I was a teenager and that was my big act of teenage rebellion was to become a conservative evangelical. Uh, so I went to college to study theology in Lithuania in the small Christian college. Um, and I wanted to become a missionary, but things, I, I mean, I, I fell in love with a woman. And I realized, too, even as that was kind of a private struggle, I also studying theology realized that the legacy of um, at least the virgin, version of Christianity that I had been exposed to was too problematic for me to continue supporting with regard to their treatment of, you know, enslaved people in the Bible, for example, or women. Um, and so, by the by the time I was done with college, I was pretty ready to transition out of that whole thing. So, then I applied to a bunch of, well, three divinity schools in the U.S. as a way to sort of transition from the study of theology to the study of the history of religion. Um, and I fortunately got into Yale Divinity School where I, where I studied women's gender and sexuality studies in the context of an MA in religion. Hmm. So I'm curious, what do you make of younger evangelicals today? Because they have been more vocal than I would have predicted when it comes to calling out sexual abuse. They are, I mean, somewhat more liberal on LGBTQ issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's say... Uh, someone like the Falwells or name the scandal, if they said, you know what, I'm getting a divorce, do you think it would have, what sort of impact would that have for like that younger generation of evangelicals who, again, I know they're conservative, but maybe less so than their parents were and grandparents were. Like, do you think there would be more room for some of these couples to end their marriages in the wake of a scandal? I certainly hope so. One of the hardest things to actually establish in studying this much longer history is whether, and if so, how a particular scandal influences the congregation or the attendance or membership. It's really, really hard to track. Um, I am guessing that the more exposed these younger evangelicals are to the broader cultural milieu and media, the more this will be happening. But I'm also aware that that's the concern that their elders are probably trying to make sure doesn't happen and and creating these like silos of thought and culture that don't allow younger people to see the variety of human sexual experiences, for example, mm-hmm. right? But I don't know. I, I have no data. You know, as a historian, I try to be very conservative and not make claims about <laughs> the future. <laughs> sure. Well, speaking of uh, that sort of thing, like I, the all the stories we're talking about here with the Falwells, the Bakers. I mean, that probably goes back to what, like mid eighties ish or something. Mm-hmm. What? How? Uh, how long have these sorts of scandals been going on? Because. Uh, I'd, I could not tell you about scandals like this that happened. I think Baker might be the earliest one that comes to my memory. Um, but like, how far back has this been going on? Yeah, so to have, in, in sort of my theorization of it, to have a scandal, you have to have a, a vibrant press, which in the U.S. did not exist until the 1830s. 
right? I mean, there were certainly local occurrences of unorthodox sexual practices before then, but what gives rise to the kind of genre of scandal is the rise of human interest stories. And so the first, the biggest first scandal that I write about in my book happens in 1832 when a Methodist, a married, of course, Methodist minister is accused of impregnating and then murdering a young factory worker. Um, And the scandal becomes a kind of referendum on the future of Methodism, which is already this new coming religion from Britain, and we're still not over the whole Revolutionary War thing, so we're suspicious of them. Plus, there are these ministers riding around different towns, converting young women, and then seducing them. That becomes the story. Um, But the other really interesting thing that happens is that the press itself is very concerned with ensuring that the public remains moral. And one of the ways they believe that the public can remain moral is that they don't hear about the bad things that their ministers are doing. Hmm. So they're they're actively navigating how much should we say about these scandals in this early era. Um, And eventually, obviously, arrive (laughs) at at the idea that, oh, no, not only does this sell, but we can also... Um, advocate for a kind of a more progressive worldview and religion the more we talk about scandals. So that's where I place the kind of early origins of scandal as we understand it today, the 1830s. Interesting. The, um, what does it say? I'm very curious what evangelicals especially make of all this, because, I mean, the fact is people have affairs, relationships fail, People explore even within the context of marriage. Evangelicals, conservative, white evangelicals specifically, they routinely promote this idea that their marriages are more stable, are more committed because they are bound by God in some way. I mean, what does it say to people of that faith that their leaders are just as fallible, curious, as the rest of the world? I think one way that they've justified that or attempted to not really deal with that problem is by talking about the the responsibility that a pastor has and the attention that a pastor gets as sort of part of the job, right? So when that Haggard scandal broke, the guy who would replace him at the National Association of Evangelicals had a press conference and he said, look, the only reason we're hearing about this is because one guy screwed up. He didn't use those words. Uh, But there's almost 400,000 other ministers about whom we do not hear. And so this rhetoric of, well, this position is one that requires charisma. We're constantly showered with affection. And actually, this defense goes back to Henry Ward Beecher's scandal in 1875. It was a similar kind of rhetoric. Well, of course people love him. And of course they're going to be put in situations where the pastor just has to always make the right choice in the context of this adoration. And therefore, it's understandable that sometimes pastors will fail. And, And that's where the ritual of sort of public confession and reiterating that the scandal demonstrates that our dogmatic commitments are correct and that this instance of sin only, again, proves our point. That's kind of the twofold way that they address this problem, I think. Do they all have a similar playbook when it comes to trying to recover from a scandal? 
You know, there's all, yeah, um, it changes over time. Uh, I would say early on, it's kind of silence and denial through most of the 19th <laughs> century. Um, and then by the mid-20th, it's more silence, but they also, particularly with these more conservative evangelical circles, uh, they have powerful friends and powerful places that help them hush the scandals. Um, but in the big explosion of scandals in the really mid-70s with um, Billy James Hargis and then Swaggart and, um, I'm sorry, Baker and, yeah, Jimmy Swaggart in the early 90s, yeah, the confession thing really works. Just take it public and then forget about it and refuse to, to investigate it any further. I, were you... Because the Jerry Falwell one is so recent and seemed to get so much press beyond just evangelical circles, I'm wondering if you noticed anything unusual about his playbook there, because I felt like I knew something was up. I mean, not just because he's one of the loudest voices preaching mm -hmm. a conservative view. It's like you're you're hiding something in my mind. But like right before the quote unquote pool boy shared his story with the press. I remember like the night before that story uh, went live, Jerry Falwell published basically a rebuttal, a pre-buttal to it in a right wing right. news outlet, basically saying, listen, they're going to try to do this stuff. None of it ever happened. Trying to get in front of the story. And I was just amazed that like he saw the walls closing in on him and he tried something that I don't think I would have seen Jim Baker do or Ted Haggard do where he's very much like, no, 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 we're going to talk about this, but I want you to share my narrative. And it turned out it just didn't hold much water once we found out the whole story. Yeah, very entrepreneurial. And, you know, he will claim <laughs> there's been articles lately of him sort of distancing himself entirely from the theology of it all, that sure, he's an evangelical, but he was never like his dad, right? He's really this like entrepreneur lawyer who went in and, saved liberty from destruction. And so don't pin the kind of religious conservative conservatism on him that you normally would. Yeah, he's an odd, he's really, they're both really, really interesting people. And this idea of then, then blaming Becky entirely with presumably mm. her full consent, right? This was an affair. I was hurt. My wife was not faithful. And look at how faithful I've been throughout through keeping Which her tolerated. Which is what he said in that pre-buttal. Yeah. yeah, he basically right. blamed his wife for having the sin. That's before we knew the details that like, oh, no, dude, you're in on it and you're watching. Mm -hmm. Like, we didn't know any of that at the time. Um, right. Is it interesting to you that how much uh, I've seen like two or three big name podcasts cover the Falwell scandal? There's like a documentary. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure more to come. Like, did that surprise you of how many people were interested in this particular story? Because like you're saying, it's not like it's new. <laughs> it's not like an evangelical leader having a scandal is new, but this one was certainly very lurid and public. Right. I mean, the pool boy, the wife, the money, yeah. right? It has the, all the elements of a kind of um, titillating story. But yeah, I, I guess I'm surprised too that that very few of the documentaries actually talk about this longer context, which I think is really important to understanding how these evangelical and other religious institutions do or do not take accountability in light of these kinds of events. 
how were they able to maintain any sort of moral authority, especially on matters of marriage or sexuality, when, like, there's so much evidence that whatever they're saying is not true? They could say, like, once you get married, you're going to be with this person, and then you see all these leaders doing stuff. I mean, I know I'm a critic. I know I'm biased here. Mm -hmm. But part of me is like, yeah, that's whatever you're preaching, the purity culture, abstinence only stuff beforehand, the once you're married, everything will work out fine. All that mm -hmm. stuff doesn't work in practice. I know that. But like, how can they say this stuff on stage with a straight face, given how many examples there are of people not following their own rules within their circles? You know, what comes to mind here is the discussion about happiness and marriages and sort of marriage as being a forever institution um, and then the problem of divorce in the late 19th, early 20th century. The, there's this explosion of eloping ministers. So I found like over 200 cases, granted over several decades, of reports of, you know, this minister disappeared from his pulpit and then usually would be followed with like, and a young choir girl was missing as well, right? <laughs> oh my God. And so for some of the ones that I was able to track down, they really are running, like leaving everything behind because they're unhappy with their marriages. They found this new, you know, usually much younger girl and they're going to a place that wouldn't know who they are to kind of start their new lives. As... In the meantime, some Protestants, um, there's a, a, a Presbyterian pastor who's attempting to articulate a theology of divorce that would honor the kind of, you know, terminal commitment should the people decide, and his church uh, censors him for that. But eventually, right, a lot of progressive churches, mainstream Protestant churches, sanction divorce as a, an okay thing. Do you and see those that changing? Who, Sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, well, those who don't remain in the headlines, right? It's the hypocrisy that gets called out. So the fact that that changed and changed fairly quickly, the rhetoric around it changed, there was more, more acceptance. And again, those denominations that were willing to change that rule disappear from the headlines. There's one very easy way, right? That's what I mean about like, the weird commitment to reiterating their conservative theologies as opposed to attempting to think about them differently. Theology has changed over time. They do not have the monopoly on some like correct interpretation of the Bible, if, if you were to go with kind of this Christian uh, orientation. And they, the fact that they won't sit down and say, okay, maybe our ideas about um, the genders and marriage and all of that are actually only about 70 three years old and, and not eternal and got sanctioned, that could help them out. That would liberate them from the burden of hypocrisy that we see over and over again. Do you think a church like that with the pastor who said those things would grow or would it decline, do you think, in attendance? Because there's something to the honesty for sure. But at the same time, like the thing they preach is this idea that we have the moral high ground and so I could also see people saying, you know what? Nope, not my church anymore. And they would just run away. But I mean, it's definitely healthier to say, yep, I'm just like you. And I make the same uh, mistakes or I have the same desires as all the rest of you. 
I mean, there's something about that honesty that could draw people in. I don't know. Do you think that would be good for bad business or bad? I'm sure they'd lose a lot of people. But I'm thinking here about something like Mars Hill, right? And um, with Mark Driscoll. The name of the leader. Mark Driscoll. Yeah. Driscoll. Yeah. So when you think about kind of the teaching of gender, his teaching was fairly unconventional, right? The gender roles and the men drink beer and they're all, I mean, it's all, I think. Very awful. alpha male, but very, <laughs> right, right. very alpha centric. Like, let's do manly things, even mm-hmm. if they seem unchristian. But at the right. root of that is still the very conservative theology behind it all. Yes. But a different valence of it. So I, I don't know if something small like that could still attract people. Um, yeah, that divorce is a kind of natural end of a lovely relationship. I mean, I don't know that they'll do that anytime soon, but it has right. been done, is, is my only point, and, and I think can mm-hmm. happen in the future. When you're studying all these relationships, these scandals, did anything surprise you? Because I imagine you could also get numb to some of it. Yeah, that's true. I think the, the the thing I've already mentioned, this idea that the press was hesitant at first, I didn't realize. I, you know, I just assumed that these stories sold, therefore they would be published. But no, the uh, from the 30s to really the Gilded Age, so the 1870s, the press is really negotiating what is moral to publish, what is moral to say. And that's one cool thing that Scandal does is that it forces us as the public to talk about things that are previously considered unspeakable, certainly unprintable, right? So that they invigorate these kinds of conversations. Uh, The other surprising thing was that just how strategic Protestants, particularly conservative Protestants, have been at attempting to mitigate the effects of scandal. So, for example, when they realize that they're really in trouble by the turn of the 20th century, they institute... Uh, places like Moody Bible Institute, for example, they institute much harsher screening procedures for prospective applicants. Like they outright ask letters of recommend or recommenders in letters to talk about whether or not the male applicants are discreet in their relationships with women. So they're aware that this stuff is happening among their ministers and they're trying to actively suppress this kind of a reputation. They also reach out to secular editors and say, stop publishing our scandals, please. We're also doing some good in the world. Can you focus on that for a second? Uh, But this harmony, this kind of attempt to marry, you know, the good works that, that evangelicals are doing with better publicity ultimately fail as scandal after scandal seems to discredit the good work that they're doing. Is there any parallel to make with the sort of, I'm not talking the child sex abuse scandals of the Catholic Church, but there are stories of priests who have secret families, who are Mm -hmm. secretly gay. Let's set aside the criminal elements of the Catholic Church. But in terms of that particular institution, are those scandals similar, different? I think there is some, because Protestants are or conservative Protestants in particular, are sort of obsessed with this idea, at least, of sort of shared authority and not having, you know, one central figure. They're still protecting their very best and brightest. But there's an attempt, at least in the early 20th century, to sort of deal with them honestly. Um, and I think that change... Or so we have records, and historian Catherine Lofton has written about this one case of a minister accused of... 
homosexual relationships in 1916, and there's a whole uh, conversation about it. They, 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 he eventually loses his job, and they try to send him off to a sanitarium to get better from homosexuality. Hasn't worked for me so far, but um, so, so at least they're talking about sort of openly. By the time we get to the mid-century with the kind of split and, and the rise of conservatives, it's much more, even when people are credibly accused, I, at least I don't have any surviving evidence of an attempt to honestly grapple with the accusations. Instead, they just get better shielded and put in positions, mm. continue to be put in positions of authority. Billy Graham writes about this in his autobiography. So he is at a Florida Bible college in the 1930s, and the president is accused, credibly, I think, of having inappropriate relations with students. It ends up causing a scandal. A bunch of people walk out, students and faculty. Uh, but Graham sort of, in his much later autobiography, will say, I'm glad this happened when I was there. It taught me to be very careful myself. So the lesson he extracts is not to, you know, abuse your authority and sleep with women women under your control, but to be very careful. I think that continues through much of the 20th century. You're referring to things like the the Billy Graham rule, the Mike Pence rule of like, I'm just <laughs> not even going to be around women who are not my wife alone anyway, yeah. which creates its own problems. Yeah, and puts women in this impossible position of seductress but also almost like a victorian notion of purity that's unattainable it's a paradoxical view of womanhood right um is there any scandal that you think would just really explode like that would actually change something that occurs in the church like jerry falwell scandal happened but in terms of evangelicals i think for a from what I've seen, it was very easy for them to write him off rather than grapple with any of the issues they may have been having. I'm wondering if like if Joel Osteen had a similar scandal, would that set off a bomb in the Protestant world? Or would is there anyone whose scandal, let's assume it's just a straightforward, we caught you doing something, you, it's immoral, it goes against what you preach, and that's it. It's not more... Uh, uh, lurid than that, would anyone's affair matter at that point? Like, would anything get these people to change their views on what a healthy relationship looks like or when it should end? Right. You know, I'm more of a pessimist than when I was when I started writing the book. I think sometime in the 20th century scandals period sort of ceased to matter in any significant way other than a kind of bringing us entertainment value to our news stories. Um, I think it's it's sad how complacent we have all become um, and how scandals have ceased to really move the needle. I mean, I think the, the Catholic Church abuse scandal is maybe one example of, of at least a demand of accountability on a large scale. Whether or not that actually pans out remains to be seen, and we've already seen how the church is evading responsibility in many ways. Um, I don't, So I don't think so. I think the only kind of hopeful thing I've seen is the with the rise of Me Too and its sister movement, Church Too, uh, young 
men and women talking about their experiences of how the teaching of the church really hurt them and, and led to abuse that just naming that thing, I think, is profound and important. Um, but I, I honestly don't see a big shakeup, no matter who. I mean, Joel Osteen, despite having a huge audience, is kind of a marginalized figure within evangelicalism, right? Yeah. <laughs> Very true. So he's already he's popular, a bit of he's a joke. He's influential. Right, right. And I think some of the more mainstream evangelicals also look down on him because of the prosperity gospel of it all. Um, so, I don't is it, see it. <laughs> okay, is it weird that for all the attention we're paying to these pastors who have these scandals and their wives sticking by their side and all that, and then you see the same people who make such a big deal within those circles about those scandals, and then you look at their support for Donald Trump, who is mired mm -hmm. in those types of scandals, and they completely don't care one bit. It doesn't affect their view of the guy at all. Um, is that, I mean, is that hypocritical or is that just, nope, they just don't actually care about this stuff? I think when you ask evangelicals about it, they will tell you that it's strategic and not hypocritical, that they have other cultural priorities and political priorities that, excuse the word, trump um, these kinds of issues. So, um, in fact, prior to the uh, midterm election, there was a New York Times uh, podcast asking one of these leaders about, you know, what's up with us, <laughs> right? And, and the answer was, well, we care about abortion and gay marriage, and we will support essentially any candidate that that stands for that at the moment. Um, and actually, I wrote about this a little bit for um, PRRI, the Public Research uh, on Religion Institute, analyzing whether personal morality of politicians uh, affects the way Americans uh, trust or don't trust them to be in public service. And across the board, uh, Republicans and Democrats, across religious groups, although white evangelicals are always at the, at the helm there, we have all become much more tolerant of the kind of immoral conduct among our elected officials. So it's not actually just an evangelical problem. I think we're all utilitarian <laughs> in in promoting the causes we, we care to promote, which I think we should be talking about more. That's an interesting phenomenon, too. Absolutely. Um, do you know when your book is going to be published? The book is called Disgraced, How Sex Scandal uh, Transformed American Protestantism. Yeah, so it's been with the editor since July. Uh, there have been some production issues, global supply chain issues oh, have affected fun. my book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently paper um, for, for book print and printing is an issue. So it should come out, I'm guessing, very early in 2024. Well, excellent. And I'm sure no scandals will occur before then that make <laughs> right. you want to go back to the manuscript. <laughs> And change it all. Um, yeah, manically trying to write a new chapter <laughs> as I finish. <laughs> the afterword is longer than the actual book, I'm right, sure. Right, right. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for this conversation. It was really fun.